So very good to see you all this morning. A number of our folks look like are missing today, but we hope to see them again real soon. The last time we looked at this passage, we saw Jesus' description as the good shepherd given by him, by him, and with the fourth I am of John's gospel, literally he is saying, the shepherd, I am the shepherd, the good one, distinguishing himself from all other shepherds that may call themselves shepherds. He is also the door to the sheep and the door for the sheep. The sheep look to him for both life eternal and temporal. Sometimes I think we forget that our life, that we walk in this world and live in this world on the grace and the and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to Him for eternal life. But do we forget to look for Him for everything else in life temporal? Maybe not everything, but we, we really should be constantly thinking that our life is all grace. It's all of grace. And without His grace, every moment we would be totally lost and undone. Thanks be to God, He keeps His promise when He gives us His grace, and He will never leave us nor forsake us. Those who enter by the door, He said, will be saved. They will live forever, and the life that they have is the life that resides in the Son of God. It is His life that He gives them. The life that the Good Shepherd gives to the sheep is both satisfying and full for both time and eternity. All other ways men devise to enter this life classifies them as thieves and robbers. And they will be judged and dealt with ultimately in judgment before God. But for the sheep... There is everlasting blessing, and they are marked out for these blessings before the foundation of the world, which we will see this morning very clearly. He is the good shepherd. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus' heart of compassion comes out when he looked at the multitudes and he saw them as sheep without any shepherd. The visual picture that we get from chapter 10 is a beautiful one indeed. It pictures Jesus as the good shepherd caring for his sheep that belong to him. His character is such that he always does good for his sheep. He never treats them wrongly or badly. Everything he does for them, he supplies grace for them to go through it. Now, for us, that may seem a bit of an oxymoron because... We can think of lots of things that Christians could go through that would not be necessarily, in our estimation, good. But if we believe Scripture, and we do, that means that Romans 8 tells us that everything God does, He intends for our good, which leads to His glory. He works all things for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. Sometimes that's hard to remember and it's hard to apply when things are really, really bad in our estimation. Yet, they are true. 
He, the sheep are gifts given to him by the Father in heaven. And he obtained the sheep by purchase with his own life. We see it over and over again in Acts 20, verse 28, Revelation 5, verse 9, and 14, verses 3 and 4. All speak of Christ purchasing his church with his own blood. Now, there are three things in this passage that we want to look at this morning. Some of it may be a bit repetitious, but repetition is a good teacher. So, uh, stay with me and follow along as we go through it. Three things in the passage that the Good Shepherd does for his sheep. First, he gives life. He gives his life for the sheep. In other words, he dies for the sheep. Second, he loves his sheep. And third, he finally unites all of his sheep together into one fold. Those three things are listed in this passage that we just read. We're going to touch on the first of those this morning, that he gives his life for his sheep. Jesus said that he lays down his life for his sheep. This relates to us, the biblical doctrine called the atonement. Jesus atoned for the sins of his sheep. Sometimes called under the heading of particular redemption. Or another phrase would be limited atonement. Now, our Armenian friends do not like those terms because they, they tend to take away what they call free will. But folks, no one has free will. No one. We'll look at it a little closer later. God chose His sheep, His people, whom He classifies as sheep, before the world was created in eternity past. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I think I counted, I counted up about 20 sermons, that 20 or 25 sermons that I have on Ephesians chapter 1. One of these days I'm going to go back and revisit those and preach them again. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That says that God has not withheld anything from His people. He has given them everything that He has in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before the creation, before there was anything, there was nothing no, no, no planets, no stars, no constellations, no space. Space did not exist. The only thing that was there was God in His triune being. God was there. And that's when He chose us. Before anything else happened kind of hard for us to put in perspective because we're creatures of time and we're stuck in time. But if we can move ourselves out of time for a moment and just try to envision in our pea brains the no space, nothing there. Just God. And in His omnipotent mind, He, he mapped out a plan, a decree, and He chose us in that plan. Now what that should do for you is not puff you up with pride. It should humble you. 
Because he didn't have to choose us. And in fact, if 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 it were all if it were all just, he would not have chosen anyone. He would have just created people and sent them all to hell. Matthew twenty five verse thirty four says this. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So it's all planned. We have this inheritance before we were ever born, before anything ever existed. This is all to emphasize the willingness of Christ who laid down his own life in the place of his sheep. He took our place on the cross. We should have been there. We should have had nails driven through our hands and feet. We should have been beaten like he was beaten. And we should have died that agonizing death. But he took it in our place. There is in, those, in that phrase uh, a, a context of uh, substitute. Substitution. That speaks to the nobility of his character as the good shepherd. He was willing, even with his own perfections and his own authenticity and his own worthiness and his own preeminence, he was willing to place himself where we should have been. It is an important theme Because he mentions this four different times in this passage. Notice verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I receive these things from the Father. Now one of the biblical points of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is that if something is mentioned more than once, you pay special attention to it. This is mentioned in one passage four times, not to mention the other times in Scripture where Jesus spoke of laying down his life or the apostles spoke of it. His death was a... So his death... I want to bring out three things about his death, laying down his life for the sheep. Number one, his death was voluntary. It was a voluntary event that he knew would come to pass. He knew it before the creation because the Father had planned it that way. And he knew it when he came here. It was the main reason that he came to earth, to lay down his life for the sheep. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the death of Christ as a great tragedy or a great accident. It was neither a tragedy nor an accident. It was a planned event that was planned by the Father with the Son. It's almost blasphemy to say that it was a tragedy. Or a simple accident. For it was neither. It was a divinely ordered and executed event. Decreed before the creation of the universe. Peter spoke of this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And when he's in speaking of Christ this way, he said in chapter 2 verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. It was a definite plan carried out by the Father upon the Son. 
Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel told Joseph, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It had to happen. Nothing could stop it. His death was voluntary. Second, his death was also a vicarious death. We don't hear the word vicarious very often in our normal conversation or speech. The word vicarious has the idea or meaning uh, that it was done on behalf of or representing another. Something performed, something suffered by one person with the results being given to the benefit of another. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This does not mean that Jesus was a sinner. It means that Jesus was a lamb upon whom sin was placed. He did not become a sinner on the cross. He became, an, he became a vessel for sin to reside. For our sakes He made Him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that, or with the purpose and result that, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If he had been made a sinner on the cross, he could not have imparted to us any righteousness at all. Rather, he was sinless and sin was placed upon him so that he took it as a sacrifice. The Father treated Jesus as if he were a sinner even though he was the sinless Son. He became the substitute then for guilty sinners like us so that God could treat us as though we had not sinned. So think about it. When you and I sin, and we do, if you say that you don't, you're in a bad place, we have to recognize that we sin. And when we recognize that we sin, we can go to to Christ, we can go to the Father, we can plead for forgiveness of our sins, and He has promised to completely forgive and justify us from our sins. It's a part of sanctification. When we realize we've sinned and we're so we're so devastated by our own sin, and I get devastated all the time by my sin. I really don't have much time to look to the sins of others because I have a real problem keeping up with my own. But when we know we have, we can go to our Father and we can confess that we did sin and He will forgive us. Every time. Without fail. Even though it's over and over again. I don't know what I would do if I did not have that promise. I think I would go completely insane. So the Father treats us as if we were as righteous as Christ because of His substitute on the cross in our place. Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law pointed to us and said, See, He's sinned. But he set that aside 
by nailing it to his cross, as Paul says to the Colossians. That's the best news in all of eternity, my friends. That'll be the theme that we, that we sing in heaven. By your blood you have saved men from every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven. And by your blood they are washed clean. His willingness to die for his sheep illustrates the protection that he has given to the sheep. Remember he said that the sheep who come in by him, who is the door, will be saved. And they'll be able to go in and out. So they can come in and have fellowship and safety with the Savior. They can also go out and find pasture and, and, and water for sustenance. And He is with them going in and out. He is the door for the sheep. And so the, this illustrates protection. It's protection. It's not a protection of earthly measure. Though the Lord does offer protection for His people here and now in time and while we live on earth. However, we must not mistake what He's talking about here. Because we would not call it protection if all of a sudden someone rose up against us and decided that we're not worth having in society and put us to death. The protection that he's talking about here is a spiritual protection. That's why he says, fear not what men may do to you in your body. Rather, fear him who is in heaven. People can kill us. They can kill our bodies. But they cannot kill our souls. They cannot harm our inner man. That has been produced and given righteousness by Jesus Christ. The life that we have resides in our soul. We'll talk about that here in a moment. His protection is from eternal danger of being cast into hell. Once we're, once we're with Him in heaven and we have a changed body... That's like unto his body. No one can harm us anymore physically because we're no longer physical in that sense. We are, we are terrestrial. I mean, we're celestial, not terrestrial. Terrestrial is here now. We'll be celestial. We'll have a celestial body that is not capable of being hurt or killed or any such thing. He's talking about that which He gives us in salvation, in our souls. It is an eternal protection. We do not have to fear Him about being cast into hell. We're protected from that by the righteousness of Christ and His substitution for us. This is the benefit... That he gives to the sheep in laying down his life. The only way God's eternal plan that the sheep can benefit eternally is by the shepherd dying for them instead of them. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus was willing to take and able to take our place, to place himself on the altar of death instead of his sheep. Now what does that look like? Well, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. This is the chapter that all, all boys and girls grow up knowing who've attended any kind of religious uh, training. 
the story of David and Goliath. David was, at this point, just a young boy, probably 13 to 15 maybe years old. He, his father Jesse was a sheep herder, and David often watched his father's sheep, shepherded his father's sheep in the fields. The day came when the Philistines came against Israel and they brought out their champion, Goliath, who was extremely large. I think Goliath was probably one of the descendants of the Nephilim of Genesis 6. And there he is, raging and taunting and, and blaspheming God before Israel, and no one in Israel was able to stand against him. David left the sheep in the hands of, of another and came to the battlefront to bring food to his brothers and his father who were there. <clears throat> and David heard all of this that, he was, that Goliath was saying and said that he would fight him. And that's where we pick up in verse 34. Saul said to David, you can't go fight this guy. He's, he is a trained, he's a trained killer from his youth. Now notice what David says, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Now, if we, if we stopped at that point, we would say, what in the world does keeping sheep have to do with killing a giant? A trained giant at that who, who was a warrior. What does that have to do with anything? David explains. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now, how many, how many 13 to 15-year-old boys do you know that could take a lion, grab a hold of him, and kill him? I don't know any. This is supernatural. This is supernatural strength. This is supernatural ability to, that God gave to David to do these things. And David knew it. Follow on. Verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now in this story, which comes from actual events in David's life, because David said to Saul, I have done these things. I have killed lions. I have killed bears. They come from the events of David's life as a shepherd. And we can see that the intention of David being a shepherd was not to die for the sheep that he had that he was watching for his father. That was not the intention. David was to live so that he could defend the sheep. But in the metaphor that Jesus gives, where David rescued his sheep, in the metaphor that Jesus uses here, it is the intention of the good shepherd to actually give up that part of his being where life exists. His soul. Did you know that Jesus gave up his soul for you and me? See the word life? <clears throat> Let me turn back to John here. Do you see the word life in verse 11? 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The word life is the Greek word pasuke. It's the word translated soul. Jesus just didn't die physically on the cross. He died spiritually on the cross. Gave up his soul. Well, that takes on a new flavor, doesn't it? What would you what would you give for your soul? What would you take in the place of your soul? All of life exists because of our soul. It is the real us. It is the inner person. Now for the unbeliever, they they live physically, but they're walking around in physical bodies with a, a dead soul. But for those who know and follow Christ, we have a living soul because He has given us a new birth. When God created Adam, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. No other creature had that. Other creatures lived, but they only lived physically. Animals don't have a soul. Only human beings. And so, Matthew 26, excuse me, 16, verse 26 says, now get this. Jesus said, asked the question, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's not a single one of us in this room that would exchange our souls for anything. Because they're too valuable. They're too valuable to us. But Jesus exchanged his soul for the souls of his sheep. That's why in John 3... He could say, for God so loved. He's so loved. I love every, every one of you in this room. I truly do. But I wouldn't give up my soul for you. I might lay down my physical life for you. He gave up his soul. He gave up his all. Everything that he had, he gave it up for you and me, his sheep. So his life is voluntary, his death is voluntary, and his death is vicarious. Last of all, his death was specific. Now, the world is made up of two different types of people. That's all, just two. They are those whom God has chosen as gifts to His Son. They are called sheep. And there are others who are not chosen, who are left to their own ways, and they are called goats. There's the two types of people. Sheep and goats. Can we, can we show that biblically? Yes, we can. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now remember, a sheep can never be a goat, and a goat will never be a sheep. They are two different creatures. Now we're talking spiritually here, but this is made very clear in Matthew 25 by our Lord. Down, look down at verse 31. We're going to skip, to, skip through a few verses here. This is at the judgment where Jesus separates some to his right hand and some to his left. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep 
from goats. And he will, verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. So Jesus is, is standing, on, he's at his throne, and he, all the nations are gathered before him. I, I can't even imagine what this looks like. But he is just going to separate them. And all the sheep will move to his right. And all the, sheep, the goats will move to his left. And then the king will say, verse 34, And then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now we already know that, don't we? That it's, it's, God has done this. Now the reality of it is coming to pass in this, in this chapter. Drop down to verse 30, or 41. Then he will say to those on his left, that's the goats from verse 32, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the lake of fire was not originally created for human beings. It was created for Satan and his angels, his, the demons that followed him. But when man fell into sin, they have part in that as well. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment. I was over here one day at this graveyard and uh, at a funeral, and I just finished the graveside, and I talked a little bit about eternity and what's coming for those who are believers and what's not coming, what's coming for those who are not. And I quoted this passage: uh, "These go away into eternal punishment." Uh, and this man, as I was walking back to the church here, this man stopped me, and he said, "He said uh, uh, that." That you, you read that, you said that wrong. I said, what did I say wrong? When, you, when a person is cast into hell, they just burn up. They cease to exist. And I said, where do you see that in the Bible? It says eternal punishment. It says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. How's that if they're just burned up and they don't exist anymore? Well, I didn't. I didn't convince him differently. But that's what it says, folks. These go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the ones on his right, they go into eternal life. There's a a sacrificial context here in the words, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It is saying that Jesus, as the heavenly shepherd, came and took on flesh, exchanged his life for the life of the sheep, or his very soul for the life of the sheep, and is going to bring all of those whom he exchanges into his fold, both Jewish and others. In the context of the world, which is Gentiles. In other words, they're all going to be there together in one fold. Now, notice the particularity of this exchange. <clears throat> he only he only gives up his life for the sheep. That means all of those that are classified by God and only He knows who they are. We can't look at people and tell. I've often thought it would sure been nice, Lord, if you had to just put a mark on, on your sheep out there, your lost sheep. And that's, we would just go to them, leave everybody else out. But that is not the way God decided to do it. He decided that we would preach the gospel to everyone. Both his lost sheep and the goats. 
The goats will never respond to it. But his sheep will. In time, his sheep, all of them, will respond to the gospel message. They will, they will follow Christ and trust in him and be saved because they come in through him. He says that, this says that Jesus' atonement, his redeeming work, was only for the sheep. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology writes this, He died for the purpose of saving only those to whom he actually applies the benefits of his redemptive work. His atoning death was for his sheep and for no others. Jesus did not come into the world to to merely make it possible for people to be saved. He came into the world to actually save. There's no guarantee in a possibility, but there is a guarantee in an actuality. So he he worked the work of his atonement of salvation and it It does exactly what it was intended to do from before the foundation of the world. It saves his sheep. No matter where they are in the world, God will send messengers with the gospel so that his sheep will hear it and believe and be saved. Galatians 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Galatians 1, 4, He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father. Of our God and Father. So in the atonement... Jesus' death by the shedding of His blood purchased all the conditions that made salvation possible for His sheep. Those benefits, namely, are the new birth, faith, repentance, justification, sanctification, adoption, propitiation, And finally, glorification, when we will be changed, we will be like Him. He did it all, and He did it unfailingly. He broke the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. The grip of sin was strong. But Jesus is much stronger. Now I want you to notice, as we start to wrap this up this morning, I want you to notice verses 12 and 13. Jesus gives an example of what can happen in in working with his sheep. Notice what he says. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now, what's he talking about here? Is he referring back to the false teachers, the the Pharisees? I don't think so. Certainly the Pharisees were wicked people. Uh, A hired hand... It's just that. They are hired to do something. They're hired to work. The ones hired to tend the sheep are not necessarily wicked people. They just care more about their own welfare than they do the sheep. And so, they really don't love the sheep because the sheep don't belong to them. I remember years ago, my my dad would say to me, Son... 
remember that if you loan something out to someone to use, remember that, it, that they'll see it as not theirs and they won't treat it like you would treat it. That's true. And so I determined if I ever borrowed anything from anyone, I would try to make it look better than when they gave it to me when I give it back to them. But generally, we, we love our own things. We care for our own things. And the things of others, well, it's not mine. This is what the hired hand does. People who work for companies, they don't own the company. And so they're not, they're not giving everything they have to the company. They're just there to work and be paid. That's what a hired hand does. So when the wolves come along, the hired hands say, Whoop, this is too dangerous for me. It's the limitations on my, uh, on my working here. Uh, I'm out of here. And they leave the sheep at the mercy of the wolves. Because they don't own the sheep. Now, don't try to put that in the context of, of your pastor. Because I'm not a hired hand in that, concept, in that uh, idea. <clears throat> I, I certainly would give my life for you as God's people. And, and giving my life to you as God's people. But I don't own you. The Good Shepherd owns you. And he calls his under-shepherds to care for his flock. Which is a representation of what Jesus will do when we're all with him. And he has one flock and one people. <clears throat> there, are so many different, there are so many different applications here that I could not begin to cover them all. So there are limitations to of what the hired hand will do in his employment. When danger or risk becomes into play, the hired hand runs to save his own skin. He will only go so far. Remember what David did when the lion or the wolf or the bear came? To scatter and wound the flock? He ran toward the danger. He was their first responder. This is what Jesus did. When David was tending his father's flock, there was a sense of, of ownership because they were his father's sheep. David was not going to let anything happen to them. The point of the analogy is to show how far the good shepherd goes to save his sheep and to keep them. And the length that he goes is he lays down his soul. Which essentially says he lays down everything he had. Instead of running away to save himself... He deliberately runs toward the mortal danger and lays down his life so his sheep will live. No one does that. Only God's Son could do that. I don't have control over my soul. Neither do you. But he did. He had control over his own soul so he could lay his soul down to death. It is for the sheep that he dies. They are called by several names throughout Scripture. In Ephesians 5 and Acts 20, the sheep are referred to as the church. In Matthew 1, verse 21, they are called his people. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 32 to 35, they are called the elect or the chosen ones. They go by different names, but they are all the same people. They are the ones called by God through the gospel to follow Christ, the good shepherd. And when they do, they're saved. And they will be eternally so. 
Aren't you glad you belong to Him? Aren't you glad that He is your good shepherd watching over your soul? Listen, if, if, he, could, if, he, could not, if he had not laid down His own soul, He could not watch over ours. And Satan would pluck that away in a second. And later on in this passage, he talks about that. How that, how that we are in His hands and in the Father's hands. And no one can pluck us out. Now, if Satan, the most powerful creature in all of eternity and through the universe, does not have the power to pluck us out, how much does that say we are safe in Christ? We have a great message to give to people. And that message is that Jesus saves that He will forgive sin. And He will change their lives because His life was given for His sheep. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day and for the opportunity to come and worship. We do worship You, our Lord. We worship You because You are worthy to be worshipped. Because you laid down your soul for your sheep, of which we are. And one day you will come for us, as you promised. And we will be with you when we will see you as friends see one another face to face. And we will glorify you in heaven forever and ever. Because of the great work that you did in redeeming us from sin and from Satan. We thank You, Lord, for this. We love You for it. And pray that You would bless us as we go from this place, that we would see the worthiness that is in You and speak of that to other people who are lost and have no hope. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.